Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of emotional computing? Um, and that's a, a term that we decided to use for computers being able to read or interpret human emotions, right? Uh, based on some kind of input. Yes. W what's interesting about this is that humans give off tons of information about their emotional state that can be picked up by sensors and analyzed by computers and of course picked up and analyzed by other humans but uh, as it turns out uh, computers continue to be better at than us at all kinds of things and pretty soon they may be better than us at picking up on emotions. Right well it's long been known that some of the physiological responses that your body has to emotion are sort of hidden from people around you. You know, you talk about butterflies in your stomach or heart racing or something. People can't see your pulse, but a heat sensor can see your pulse if it's hooked up to a computer. So uh, there are some obvious advantages that this kind of thing has. If you have no image in your mind of what we're talking about, by the way, I, there's a popular cultural image that we can mention, which is in Blade Runner, right? The test that they administer oh, uh, right. to see okay. if uh, someone's a robot or not in a world where there's pervasive uh, humanoid uh, robots is a sort of biometric lie detection test where they ask them if they uh, have emotions while they check their uh, their eye responses to see if their eyes, you know, are responding emotionally in the way that they expect a, a human to. Well, and, you know, real... Uh, regular lie detection uses, you know, similar techniques. Right, similar biometrics. But I think the, the premise right. in that movie is that the the androids don't feel normal emotions, which my problem with that is that seems to be sort of perpetuating this idea that, like, emotions are only the domain of humans. Well, right. I mean, it's classic sci-fi, and it does sort of operate on that sort of silly classic premise that uh, that there's something ineffably human or something... But the, I think the cool thing about the, the way they present it in the story is there is no actual proof that there's any difference between humans and robots True. in Blade Runner. Uh, and the only thing that they're actually measuring is whether their, um, their exterior physiological responses to emotional questions are different from a human's, which could just be an engineering flaw or something that they designed on purpose to, uh, to differentiate yeah, no, you I, know, it, the robots. It does convey the basic idea that we're, we're trying to get at today, which is uh, with a test of external signals that a person gives off, you know, whether it's a, a Blade Runner, you know, humanoid test or whether it's just a modern day polygraph test. Right. You can possibly infer what's going on with the internal emotional state of a person. And it seems that computers are going to get better at doing that, both because of the volume of data that they can take in and how they can process that. I mean, you know, we can process other people's emotions to a certain extent, but it's very easy for us to be fooled. Right. Uh, and actually, there's some evidence, right? You were showing me an article a second ago that, that indicated that uh, some computers were actually already better than humans at like telling the difference between like a real smile and a fake smile. No, it was or pain. Um, oh, it was faking pain, faking pain uh, versus really feeling pain. Uh, this was, a, I think, a Toronto study. And uh, the humans were just, uh, you know, no better than random at, at determining uh, fake pain from real pain. And the computers were right 85% of the time. They were pretty good at it. So that's current technology just going off of uh, photographs of faces, right. analysis of photographs of faces. So the access to sensors that computers potentially have is obviously much greater than just the same you know, sensors that we have, like light and sound. They can potentially get all kinds of different data 
And like you say, they have uh, superior pattern recognition um, skills uh, to us as well, at least in some areas. Right. Like nature gave so. us uh, pretty good intuition for, for judging emotions, but it seems that that can actually be beaten uh, with software. So we, yeah. we want to go through a list of, I think, first, some of the types of emotional data that people give off externally that could be grabbed by a sensor. And, right. And, you and, don't even think about some of this stuff because it's it would be impossible for you to ascertain it with your human sensory apparatus. Right. But like uh, an upgraded apparatus hooked up to a computer may, may be able to get um, more information than the, you know, smiles and frowns that we that we know about already. Right. So the first thing is eye movements, which most of us, when we're sitting at our computers now, I'm sitting at a laptop that has a camera facing me, which could be on, could be on even without me knowing it, I suppose. And that could easily be tracking my eye movements. What part of the screen am I looking at? How long am I looking at it? I think this would take, you know, even better image processing, but like a security camera might be able to pick up my eyes and what I'm looking at and figure out my sight lines. So we give a lot away by what we're looking at, how long we're looking at it. And I think also just by like the rapidness of our eye movements too, I think also conveys an emotional state. And so that information is really just dangling out there. And I think some of this data we talk about is going to be probably data that you would have to volunteer by, you know, like say wearing a, a sensor on your body, but your eye movements pretty much, you know, unless you're wearing shades all the time. Yeah, they're pretty hard to hide, honestly, without, yeah, like looking weird. Although I guess maybe in that a, could be a defense to this. pervasive eye movement scanning future, people will, you know, all wear sunglasses indoors. And eye movements are something that obviously, you know, humans have access to like i can i can judge what another human's interested sure. in by what they're looking at like i can see if somebody and you can tell how nervous someone is by how jumpy their eyes are and such but you're it's a pretty limited sensory apparatus that you have for that because eyes are small and people are not usually right up in your face so you, and if people just don't have the bandwidth to, to focus on that most right of the time. on if there are 10 people in the room you can't focus on all 10 of their eyes right, right? that's i mean maybe one person if they're very important you could track their eye movements well enough to infer some emotion from them. But a computer would be able to just simultaneously do it for a huge crowd. Right. So another thing also related to eyes, but that's not so much movement, is pupil dilation. Sure. Which conveys a lot of information about concentration, about how hard someone is trying, about uh, arousal. Obviously, pupil dilation maps to light, you know. Everyone knows sure. that, you know, if there's less light in the room, your pupils will get bigger to take in more light. But they also, there's a lot of more emotional states that pupil dilation syncs up to. Right. And another advantage of a computer is that it would be able to correct for light. Uh, it could probably figure out what where your opening should be based on ambient light. Uh, you wouldn't be able to tell that with just your human eye. The book by uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, talks a little bit about pupil dilation, which is a great book uh, th about, you know, cognitive biases, cognitive biases and, and human yeah. irrationality. And uh, yeah, he's able, I think, to tell before somebody gives up on a problem, I think, because their, their pupils get extra dilated. I think that's what I, <laughs> what I read about that. So... <laughs> you can imagine uh, your glasses monitoring that and uh, giving you a little don't give up, like, uh, hang in there, cat. <laughs> oh, here it is. As Kahneman says in his recent book, Thinking Fast and Slow, he could divine when someone gave up on a multiplication problem simply by watching for pupil contraction during the experiment. Oh, so is that determining then that they just stopped paying attention? Like, is that what happens? You're like, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. And then the people's di uh, contract no it says it reflects the extent of mental effort in an incredibly uh, precise way so that means that they're being taxed to their limit and they're it. about to give up got yeah it. let's see inflection is another one now this is one that humans use a ton right and we're really good at 
determining yeah. inflection. But that information, I mean, it's basically well, pitch it's also super fakeable, right? Because sure. humans are really. I mean, this is why you can act. This is what acting is in right. inflection mimicry to a large degree, at least voice acting is. Sure. Um, you're able to in- intellectualize and um, store, you know, in your brain um, inflection patterns, almost like music or something, and then recreate them. You know, people have a strong ability to do that. So natural inflection is, of course, very easy for humans to read, but we are easily fooled by each other. Now, I wonder, I don't know, I haven't seen any studies, but I wonder what you know, where the computer's at with that. Well, it, it matters if you're if you're in a situation where you'd be trying to fool the computer, but a lot of the time, if the computer's just picking up your everyday conversation, you're not trying to fool the computer. So right, it's, that's it's true. going to probably get the right impression. Right. And the other thing is that, I mean, humans pick up, you know, intervals, right, mm-hmm. and, and pitch changes, but there might be more information out there that people are not picking up, right? right. Like there might be like a higher, you know, resolution, like say... Like we pick up on, you know, say an interval, say like a tritone in someone's speech or like a major seventh that might sound like they're like exasperated or upset or something. Mm -hmm. But is there, you know, finer details of pitch and inflection that are there that we're just not able to pick up on that a computer with sufficient amounts of data and pattern recognition could sort through? Right. Thinking about rhythm, thinking about uh, length of vowels, thinking about right. um, upward and downward motions. There's a lot of axes on which you can vary your vocal speech, and it's not necessarily clear what data might be lurking in there that we haven't uh, got access to. Right. And as far as fooling it, I mean, there are, I think if someone's lying, they do tend to speak at a higher pitch and stuff. So there are, you know, depends, there are depends how good of an actor you are right. and, and really actually how aware of this you are. That's the thing is like the more people are aware of the program that's listening to them that they're trying to fool, the more they could adapt to it, I suppose. Yeah. So we've got eye movements, uh, pupil dilation and inflection. Last one is also another one that humans use all the time, but that computers can probably do a better job of, which is reading facial expressions. And I know that there's already software that's working on this. I know that there's been some academic attempts too to sort of taxonomize different types of facial expressions. Uh, there's something called FACS, F-A-C-S, the Facial Action Coding System. It's actually used a lot by animators, mm. uh, and but also in certain types of lie detection to say distinguish you know different types of smiles from each other. You know, there's the the insincere smile and the sincere smile, and they can actually like parse out what the different muscle movements are that distinguish those things and, and classify <laughs> them. Um, but actually, I mean, what might work best in a computer is not any kind of human taxonomy might be something right, where the machine computer, learning, the machine learning, where you right. just, you just feed it lots of, uh, base data and it let it sort it out. And didn't you say that there was some, yeah, it's an Ohio state university program and they just put 5,000 images in it, uh, taken from 230 volunteers and, uh, they were responding to verbal cues, uh, the volunteers, like you smell a bad odor or you got some unexpected news. So I guess they're acting, essentially. They're using the volunteers as actors, and then uh, they just fed it into the computer, and the computer assigned these like extremely specific descriptors to it, like happily surprised, fearfully angry, appalled, hatred, awed. And uh, it was able to distinguish you know, between surprised and happily surprised uh just from just from being fed all these pictures right a pretty like like fine level of resolution right well it's just it's like a fairly complex taxonomy system that they ended up with right yeah well and facial expressions also fall into this thing where 
you know, you don't necessarily have control over that. If you're in front of a security camera, right. if you're in front of your webcam, uh, if you're within sight of someone's uh, augmented reality glasses or whatever it is, uh, they're going to capture that data. And I think all these things, it's important to remember, are going to be most powerful when they're all sort of put together, right? So if you only have the facial expression, sure. But if you have the facial expression plus the inflection, plus the pupil dilation, plus the eye movements, right? Right. Start putting all these things together, and it seems like the amount of certainty that a, that an algorithm could conclude what your emotional state is would uh, that certainty would get start to get pretty high. Right. Um. So another thing that uh, you don't really have control over is uh, your sort of blood flow and your which gives off like heat. Right. Um. So there's this heat mapping technology. Sure, heat mapping. They use infrared uh, sensors, and they can tell like where blood is pooling in your body yeah that's something you also have no control over and very little ability to hide you could like sort of wear ice packs or <laughs> there are sort wow. of methods of of fooling an infrared sensor but again you'd have to like know that you're going into a place where this is going to be there and and know that you want to fool it right and i saw a i guess some some finnish researchers you know tried to map out uh different emotions right and uh, you can go see a kind of a cool graphic online if you search for, for heat mapping uh, where they've you know, charted different emotions like anger, fear, happiness. And it appears that, you know, different parts of the body are lit up. Now, I don't I don't know exactly what their experimental method was here or how actually effective this is. But uh, it does sort of stand to reason that, you know, if you're, say, in a state of anxiety, that your blood flow is going to be following a certain pattern that might be, say, different than if you're depressed or, or neutral. So it's just, it's one other data stream that might be taken advantage of. Yeah, it seems like maybe a blunter instrument than some of the other ones, but uh, taken in concert with some of these other things, it definitely adds valuable data. And now these days, aren't people like wearing a lot of technology that uh, can give you all kinds of um, biometric data that's much more specific than that too? Like uh, people have their Fitbits and their step counters and all those sort yeah of let's jump to that so one of the th things that i found that's being worked on is there's these uh these biometric shirts you know and these are would be mostly designed say for uh somebody like an astronaut or somebody that's climbing mount everest that's like doing a very physically strenuous thing where you want to monitor them all the time Got but it. it would also be useful for anybody that's part of that sort of quantified self-movement and it wants to you know keep track of their own fitness or their sleep efficiency sure. and this technology is basically able to make a, you know, laundry washable shirt uh, that can track your things like your heart rate and your respiration rate and your skin temperature and your your blood pressure. And you basically put it on and it, it starts recording. And so that's more of an opt-in thing, right? That's not something that uh, you'll probably be forced to wear, but it's something that you may want to wear. Right, because uh, it'll have some benefits It'll have to some you. definite benefits, yeah. Right. I read an interesting bit in one of these Peter Diamandis articles about this topic, about uh, a Microsoft researcher who uh, was uh, doing some research into this stuff and wearing a, a biometric uh, wristband uh, that was uh, reporting her blood pressure uh, or her, her, her pulse and also, I think, uh, galvanic um, skin response to, right. to, to stress levels. The story was interesting because apparently uh, she had it set up to alert her boyfriend when her stress levels got too high. And then she apparently was in the middle of a fight with that boyfriend. She's at the height of the fight uh, when she felt the worst uh, and was uh, the angriest at the boyfriend. He apparently got a text message from their little system that they had set up that said, uh, 
you should give your friend Mary a call. She's feeling badly, which uh, is a very funny, um, like sort of brittle use of such a well, thing. Well, although hopefully that right? helps the argument. That might have brought a little bit of levity to whatever argument. I mean, having. it was presented <laughs> in the article in such a way that it that that was the implication, and you know. That's funny to me. I think um, but it's definitely not working as intended. Right. Well, I would. Yeah, I would be very amused if, um, in the middle of a of a knockdown dragout fight with my significant other, I uh, got a text saying like, you know, she's upset. You should you should probably comfort her. That's uh, that's good advice that the computer is giving, even though it's uh, obviously nothing a human would do in that. I wonder if, like, statistically, your your boyfriend or girlfriend is more likely to cause you. Emotion, be the cause of the your cause. emotional distress than the, than the <laughs> cure. The cure. <laughs> because the assumption there was that he would be the cure and come to her rescue, but really he turned out to be the cause. And I wonder if that just generalizes across relationships. Right, maybe they should just have the text going to a friend instead of to the boyfriend. Right. And it should say, you know, She's Mary is having a, a fight with her boyfriend right yeah. now. Maybe you should call her and get her out of it. <laughs> yeah, that says something bad about relationships if that were true. Um, I'm sure it varies. Uh Another, I guess, sort of related to that is uh, this was a very recent article that came out. Uh, it was uh, like a Korean lab, I think, that figured out this like goosebump sensor. It's like the size of a postage stamp and you put it on your skin and it can kind of <laughs> tell, uh, you know, whether your hair is standing on end or whether you're sort of being aroused in that particular way. And, you know, the way they tested it was just by like, you know, putting ice cubes on people sure. you know, and stuff. But uh, you, there's definitely like that happens sort of naturally, you know, when you might be watching a scary movie or you might be aroused in some other way and so that's just an it's just another source of information oh, the time between that you know you telling me about that and that becoming a uh, product for girls a true love detector for girls uh, it's i think you know gonna be incredibly short that's gonna be a, a product available in korea i think next week right? interesting yeah you'd have to uh, you put it on your skin and then you call your uh your crush and you see right. if it beeps uh heart or x heart you know i i I mean, there's technology like that already that just doesn't work. Uh, that's just hoax technology. I feel like there's yeah, the, the goosebumps are the way to know your own heart or yeah, whatever. I don't know exactly. Be, I'm sure there's some marketing term uh, uh, that you could come up with. Right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that's another opt-in one. I mean, I don't think well until the government mandates that we all get goosebumps sensors. Uh, that's a that's a dark future. That is a uh, a very silly. <laughs> this silly is a very version. silly totalitarian future, is it not? It's like that's what they've decided to use their totalitarian power for. Is like they're going to know when we're all scared. Right. Um. <laughs> But anyways, here's one that is not opt-in, which we, yeah. which is sort of an obvious one. It's just movement, right? I mean, just like uh, your types of movement that you make, whether they're jerky or fast or slow or lethargic or like they kind of imply anger or you're like gesticulating a lot because you're excited. Sure. Um, all that's pick, you can be picked up by a camera, but also, you, you know, an accelerometer might also pick up other types of movement. We already pa yeah. uh, track your your steps with GPS, right? Right. I mean, and that works really well. Like uh, Google recently has started telling me where I parked because the GPS sensor was going fast when it was in my car, and then right. my car parked, and then I walked inside, and it was going slow, and I didn't tell it anything. It figured out, oh, uh, when we started going slow and not fast, that's when we parked. So you're parked there, which is actually pretty complicated if you think about it. Uh, but that's that's a feature that works. That's already happening. Right, and that's cool. And that's that's you know? um that's not really emotional. But although there is emotional mm -hmm. information that could be conveyed the, if someone's pacing around back and forth, that might imply something. Sure, or if, or if they, they speed off in their car up, yeah, yeah. above the limit or something. There's, I think there is some data there. Obviously, the finer 
it is like the actual movement of your body, which you'd need video, I think, for, uh, gives you much more data. That's just really like a bigger version of the facial uh, thing, you know, because it's just like acting too. You can fake it if you put a lot of effort in, but it is difficult to do all the time. And again, you know, we don't know to what extent with all of our movements and inflection and facial expressions, like even the best actor in the world versus somebody who's not acting, um, maybe that fools a discerning human, but maybe that doesn't fool a discerning computer because we don't know how fine grain this stuff gets, right? This I sounds mean, like a really fun experiment to run, and I think that we should do it. Oh, like putting a uh, like a world class a- acting actor. Turing test or like acting, you know, actor versus Deep Blue. It does seem like it's a challenge that IBM would take on or something. Yeah, you get like Patrick Stewart and IBM to like Patrick Stewart's the perfect person for this, right? He would do this. <laughs> yeah, he's the he's the Gary Kasparov of actors, I think. And, uh, and they just, you know, they have a hundred Joe Schmoes off the street and they run the thing a hundred times and they see how many times the computer can tell Patrick Stewart's emotion from the, the Joe Schmo or something. Well, yeah, except you kind of have to work out how you set that up because like, you know, Patrick Stewart would be that his, he would be following a script, but you also need, you need the control. You need somebody who's, uh, who's, who's being authentic. Right. You need to have regular people who you screen have actual experiences or emotions or whatever the problem is people would recognize patrick stewart they'd be like hey that's patrick stewart and they'd know that he was the actor (laughs) well of course people would know that patrick stewart was the actor that's true but the computer wouldn't know that the computer wouldn't know that but i think to do a proper control you'd probably have to have like a no-name actor unfortunately but you could you know i'm sure you could get like patrick stewart to preside over it for pr i feel like you need patrick stewart one way like involved in this sure yeah what else oh oh yeah so the last thing i wanted to talk about is just the way you just interact with regular computer interfaces whether that's like swiping a trackpad or pressing a key sure um that conveys emotional information if you bang a key like the same key three times in a row that suggests that you're impatient and something's not working well they already do that on uh, some operating systems if you bang the keyboard, like if you mash the keys a couple of times, it will uh, it will ask you if you want to go to a, an assisted mode. <laughs> you know, it will sure. it will assume that you are not a competent person to be using the computer and try to help you out. But uh, obviously, you could see that going a lot further. Uh, Diamandis in his article mentioned like if you pound the keyboard, then maybe the computer says, "Are you sure you want to send that email?" You know. But also, yeah, uh, I wonder about swiping if there's aggressive swiping <laughs> or, or depressed swiping. Right. I mean, who knows? I mean, again, you, some of this stuff, it sounds ridiculous that a depressed person would swipe their trackpad differently right. than a happy person. But oh. it's like, we don't know how much in, of this data uh, is, is just kind of like dangling out there. I mean, there's just a lot of patterns in the world that humans just can't pick up. So we'll find out. Right. We'll find out increasingly which ones matter. Uh, one thing we should mention maybe before we move on is this um, recent Facebook kerfluffle, right? Where they did some oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, social engineering online to try to figure out their own algorithm. And it's kind of an interesting argument because I, I feel like the point's been missed with most discussion of that argument, which is uh, people got very upset because uh, the design of this study was that they, they counted the frequency of negative words in posts, and then they, they screwed with the formula of how many negative words would go into your feed in posts. So, and then they monitored how many negative words were generated by the people whose formula was screwed with, right? So if you saw more negative words, they found mm-hmm. you posted more negative words. And they posted this as if the theory of uh, emotional contagion is proven by, I think, some sort of spurious, <laughs> um, like, I think that it's, it's got a spurious assumption here, which is that they're assuming that if you post more negative words, you are in fact sadder. 
uh, where I don't think it makes sense because they didn't actually get people to self-report their emotions. So they didn't, nobody actually said, I'm sad or happy. They were just using more of these words that they are associating with sadness or happiness. And I think that can more easily be explained by uh, the fact that they saw more sad words in their feed and social media is a performance. And therefore, when you think that social media is a place for sad words, you post more sad words. There, I don't think there's any indication in their study that that actually makes you, the user, sadder. Yeah, I, another alternate explanation is that there, I think, you know, humans do a lot of subconscious mimicry. I mean, right. I catch myself doing it. It's like if I hear a word used an unusually large number of times, sometimes I find myself sort of working that word into, into conversation. It's exactly just, what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly the same thing. It's, a, you, it's not a conscious thing, but you're performing yourself on social media. You're typing words that you think are appropriate to the venue of social media to represent yourself. I mean, you're not like uh, consciously doing that, but that's basically what everyone's doing on a, a site like that, uh, like Facebook. So yeah, so of course you're gonna, if you see more of those words, that's what it feels like Facebook is for. I also kind of feel like it doesn't really, it doesn't really pass the like who cares test. I mean, like, like let's say we did show that like the more negative things you're exposed to, the more negative you feel. I mean, is that, is that a shocking, surprising or interesting result? No, well, really. then, well, if that were proven, then I think people's outrage that they intentionally made people less happy for their own research purposes, you know, would meet the bar for me of ethical uh, questionableness. I think if they were actually effectively, but they wouldn't uh, know affecting if... people's emotions. But I think that's a huge leap to make from what they actually tested. It sounds like all they were doing is seeing if the input of what they considered sad words increased the output of what they considered sad words. That to me is much more limited. But with an experiment like that, you wouldn't know it was unethical until after the fact, until you'd already proven what it was you were the well, open it, question that you had, which is, and then, and then you'd realize after the fact, oh, I guess that was unethical. Right. So you'd have to do, right. You, the way that you'd have to do that if you want to do it ethically is you'd have to have a study in which people were aware their emotions would be possibly affected by the study and that they agreed to it. And then in that study, you'd have to prove this concept that this emotional condition contagion even works like this and that uh, seeing these things even means anything. And then you could run the study they ran, I think. But um, I think that's what people are upset about. I think it's an interesting thing, though, because the fact is that uh, whether or not what they did recently uh, makes any sense, eventually Facebook, with their massive store of data, is going to have the ability to uh, not just read our emotions, but affect them, well, I think. And here's the thing. My take on this whole story is why should people be upset about something that they are probably doing a ton of. This is this is just something that they reported because probably because they thought people would find it interesting. Maybe like in some uh, misguided fashion, they thought that like this would like boost their company appearance instead of angering people. Maybe yeah. they didn't do that calculation properly. Yeah, that's but, correct. But clearly they're doing these experiments all the time and they're probably mostly for the purposes of improving their advertising revenue. Yeah. They're doing little tiny empirical tests using us as the test subjects and we're just not hearing about it and so i mean the notion that we would get so upset about this fairly innocuous one that they did well no i think people who are upset about it they figure oh well this is just the one we're hearing about the tip of the iceberg and and yeah and the company is obviously uh, just made a mistake in letting us know about it you know what what would you expect an advertising company to do i mean it's no different from nielsen ratings nielsen ratings are just a big experiment with people as test subjects to try to figure or like whatever well, it, but is, it is different from Nielsen ratings because Nielsen ratings don't yeah. uh, they don't alter what you watch in order to alter to change your emotions uh, there's not as like tight a feedback loop um, happening they're there, just it's, they're it's just measuring what loop. people do and of course everybody expects that Facebook will measure what we click on for example and then adjust their algorithm but changing what they show us 
not to sell us better products, but to just make us happier or sadder if they really were able to do that, which again, I question, does to me cross uh, an ethical line that just uh, uh, watching us in order to sell us better things or make us into better audience member for uh, for advertising, I think is, um, which is I'm sure how they're looking at this, actually. I'm sure that they look at it like a happier posting community is a more advertising friendly posting community. They're less likely. Ultimately, that's got to be their bottom They're less line. likely to diss things and more likely to promote things online, Well, that's right? always been their implicit philosophy and, right. about the fact that there's a like button and there's no there's dislike no button. There's no dislike button, right. It's all about promoting positive things so that when you promote a brand, it's associated with all these other positive things. As opposed to yeah, that's part of know. their that's part of their culture on Facebook. That's part of the reason that I I find uh, Facebook, although I use it, it's often less interesting place to visit because it's so it's, it's sanitized. It's so much positivity. It's like being in church or something. It's like, yeah, positivity yeah. and weird political rants. At least that's what my Facebook walls <laughs> always seems to look like. Well, see, that's the thing is like it's not a good place to talk politics because when someone does po- talk politics, it's violating the Facebook culture. And so it really sticks out like a sore thumb. It sticks out. It does. And like, whereas like you can have interesting political discussions on some of these other social networks and it doesn't, it fits in more. Right. They're uh, more contentious. Smoothly. I think that's why like a Reddit or a G plus or Twitter. And that's just kind of how it is. That's more like, contentious and more open. And that's what makes them fun, honestly. Whereas like right. a, a political discussion is never fun on Facebook because it's like, Ugh, you no. always just feel like it's you and your like crazy uncle at Thanksgiving going at it. And everyone else is like, when <laughs> are they going to stop just waiting for you to shut up? <laughs> exactly. That's how I always feel with those things on Facebook. You know, it's a sanitized place where everyone is. And the one benefit of it is everyone's there and there's really no other. Yeah. You know? But anyways, we've gotten yeah. way off topic into like social network subcultures, which I guess is we have maybe an interesting topic for later. But um, so we, we went through all these types of emotional data that could be collected by computers. And I think there are four results that at least we could think of, of gathering all this emotional data and processing it. And the first result is something that we mentioned, which is the idea of pervasive lie detection, right? With all this emotional data, can you tell... When people are lying, can you tell on the fly? Can you tell very easily? Does it put lie detection? I mean, right now you can do a polygraph test where you, you know, have to bring someone in with a, you know, and it's a long process. You have to hook something up to them. Right, but and it's pretty well known that it doesn't work that well. <laughs> right. But yeah. could you have really good lie detection and but could lie, you put yeah. it in the hands of ordinary citizens? Yeah. Lie uh, detection in like a cell phone app that works, for example, uh, would be massively world changing. And this is obviously, if you think about these things all progressing at once, this would be in addition to the kinds of uh, surveillance uh, increases that we've talked about on previous podcasts too. Yes. So in addition to making it very hard for somebody to sort of directly lie, like if I say, hey, John, did you do X? And I'm pointing my cell phone at you, then like, you know, you say yes or no, the cell phone. It tells you like, John is lying with with 70% or 80% certainty. Yeah. Right, right, right. Exactly. It gives you like a confidence interval on John's lying. Um, And then that also is combined with my ability to like search your surveillance past and go check up on your answer or, you know, an AI assistance ability to do the same, then that's an even more powerful force against being able to really lie effectively at all. Yeah, the future of lying does not look good for liars when you put all this stuff together. But even beyond that, because, you know, lying is a very, in the sense that we were talking about, is a very intentional thing uh, where you're intending to deceive someone, and if they have a reason to suspect you're lying, probably they can fact check that. Although if it's a small white lie, they may not care or bother to investigate. But I think there's also the potential with all this emotional data 
to not catch people in lies, but just to kind of bring subtext uh, and sort of like withheld emotions to the surface. Right. Right. I mean, I, always the con- most convenient example, I think, is say a date, right? I mean, right. you just might have a lot of real-time information about whether or not the person is actually interested or right. a job interview is similar or like any type of situation where two people are trying to assess each other's emotional state and that's not totally transparent in today's world. That potentially just bubbles up to the surface. Right, right. Um, to where it's just laid bare and, you know, that's potentially awkward or useful. I mean, that maybe saves a lot of time. I don't know. Well, maybe right. That- it will definitely be awkward for the first people doing it, but I, I feel like it's the kind of thing that culture will adapt to um, right. over time. But yeah, absolutely. And then another uh, result of this is that advertising is going to massively take advantage of emotional computing or affective computing to try to target its customers better and to yes, serve this is, them this better. is the big second bullet point so yeah yeah i mean this is the facebook data, point that yeah. we're yeah. making they're trying to build this and and many other companies are trying to build this and uh in it, it's obvious that uh advertising has a great incentive to want to know exactly what your emotional response is on a you know moment by moment basis to the to the advertising media that they're creating and to the you know, various kinds of engagement that they're doing and, and what have you. Right. During uh, the watching of a film, they'll know the exact moment you lost interest or during the reading of a book, they'll, they might know. Oh now, God, the, now, this yeah. is going to be terrible for, for test screenings of films. Oh, potentially, yeah. Oh, my God. I just thought of that. <laughs> well, it could lead to movies that, uh, like, don't make any sense as a cohesive whole, but, like, just constantly generate short-term excitement. Yeah, uh, for example, that's true. Uh, just because, you know, if they're just looking at the little meter of yeah, moment people got by bored moment, here. Yeah. 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 There's like, take out this boring part. Even if that's like really critical exposition that sets up like a bigger payoff later, they may not have that sort of, uh, holistic view that would allow them to, to figure that out. Right. So, uh, it could lead to some very bad hyperactive filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think this applies to any type of medium where you're trying to capture people's attention and just knowing with a you know, very fine-grained level of detail uh, where people are tuned in and where they aren't. Um, so we've got uh, lie detection, we've got advertising, and then a third uh, way to use all this emotional data is to design interfaces that sort of tailor themselves to the emotional state of the user, perhaps to make them more usable. Right, right. So the really extreme version of this is like an actual AI psychologist, right? Who could uh, full on read your emotional state and assist you in having a better one. Yeah, I mean, they could be actually trying to like they could do that job. Your emotions, which is what a yeah, which is like what a therapist or psychologist would do. Yeah, Uh, they could just also be trying to serve you emotionally appropriate content. Sure. Uh, uh, like a personal DJ, uh, right? An AI right. DJ. Yeah. Or it could just help them in understanding what you actually want. I mean, I think in terms of natural language processing, the emotional context, I think, is important, right? Sure. In terms of like when some words mean some things and some words mean other right, things. Right, right. It has, yeah, it has consequences for meaning. Yeah. Or I think you could imagine media like interactive media, games perhaps, or something of that nature that like right. responds on the fly to how you're feeling. Uh, Aaron's game does this, right? Um, girl that we went to college with who's a, a game designer, Erin uh, Reynolds, has a game um, that she's developing that um, gets harder when you get scared. It, it, uh, you clip a, a heart rate monitor to your computer 
I think is how it works. Okay. And uh, it's um, we'll put a link to it. I think it's called Nevermind. I got to look that up. But yeah. I think that's the name of it. You put, clip something onto you, and if you get... It's a horror game, so if something in the game works and scares you, it uh, makes the gameplay uh, harder. So you have to it's sort of... Uh, I have a problem with that idea. I think that's fascinating. The, the, the problem I have with that is that if you're... The pleasure, right, in a horror is you want to be scared. So right. You, but you're incentivizing the gamer to not feel the emotion that they're there for. Uh, doesn't that create like a weird conflict of interest but in I the mind of the gamer? I think it's good in, in the instance of terror because I think trying not to feel terror will make you feel more terror. Maybe, yeah. It'll make you anxious. Maybe psychologically, I mean, that's how I, I haven't played the game, so I can't comment on whether or not it's well done, but uh, I think it's a smart idea and it's an interesting approach. And yeah, you might imagine a game that's sort of the opposite, takes the opposite and actually gets um, harder and scarier the more calm you are, basically just trying to constantly keep you in a state of terror. Um, right, or gets, uh, but, or gets uh, easier the more frustrated you get, which I think would make for <laughs> yeah. sort of an annoying game, actually, if you knew that that's what it was doing. <laughs> yeah. But if you didn't know that's what it was doing, you might think it was the best game ever. Because, like, like every time you were going to give up, you're like, something great happened. <laughs> right, it would just it would really string you along. You're like, I am done with this puzzle game. I cannot solve this. And then like it right at that moment, it, it gives you like a hint. And you're like, this game is really well balanced. <laughs> But I think if you knew that that's what was going on, you'd feel, like, manipulated or something. Yeah, yeah. So, Aaron, if you're listening, there's an idea for your next game. Yeah. Don't, but don't tell people. Yeah. So I think the Nevermind gimmick is a better one to tell people about, because I think they get excited. They're that like, maybe oh, creates a fun psychological interplay. Like, I'm going to try to stay unscared, and it's, you know, this game's going to be so easy for me. And then... I feel like there needs to be uh, uh, lots of dogs and bees in that <laughs> in that game right because that's that's famously the animals that can smell your fear or right. tell when you're scared and right. there's some bars like cartoon about dogs and bees together at the fear convention or something <laughs> but uh um okay so yeah I, let's see pervasive lie detection advertising data in, interfaces that adapt to their emotional state of the user right and then the fourth thing is identifying distressed and dangerous emotional states of people and maybe intervening, right? Because maybe someone's suicidal or, uh, or maybe they're just really upset and they're going to do something stupid. They're going to drive poorly or they're going right. to uh, right. say or something they shouldn't say. It turns out that like stress is a major long-term health uh, risk. Sure. So if just every time your stress levels are reaching a certain level, uh, you're just reminded to relax. Take a break. Take a break. Exactly. The uh, the 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 Wii uh, game it can console. Sense emotion, but it can't speak with emotion. No, yeah. Well, the people didn't like that. They, they uh, the Wii game console every so often will just say like, "Hey, why don't you go outside?" And that's not terribly correlated to anything. I think it's just how long you've been playing. But you could imagine that being you know connected to a sensor in your stick, and when you uh, get too clammy, <laughs> it says, "You know, you need some sun." So that's another. Results. So, you know, you can see how this will make people's lives better, intervening when uh, they could hurt themselves or when uh, they're in a bad state, uh, tr trying to give them a kind of a calm, collected, rational voice in their heads uh, at times when their own heads won't be able to provide that. But then also you can imagine this being just, um, you know, tremendously uh, abused by, you know, authorities of various kinds. Like uh, if you're torturing someone and you know if somebody's faking pain or not, or you can, you know, very carefully, uh, very precisely tell how much pain they're feeling due to various biometrics that you're measuring. 
then you can torture them to you know, the absolute limits of their um, ability to well, take it. that's a very awful place for that right? to go. Right, or, uh, I mean, that's like the worst thing I can think of. Or if there's uh, pervasive lie detection, uh, then um, any cop stopping you on the street is is essentially giving you a polygraph test if they're wearing a you know pocket-mounted camera that can tell if you're lying. Um, so even though you haven't been charged with anything and you're not uh, you know in a courtroom under oath, you're still being subjected to some pretty intense... Well, uh, Hopefully you can polygraph them back, right? Because you could say, like, you could ask them questions like, are you legally allowed to do this or whatever? And <laughs> right, then, right. And then, but... and then you could fact check their answers. <laughs> uh, so at least hopefully that would go both ways. But, you know. Right. Well, it just probably... depends on, on how, it, how it gets distributed. They, they still have a badge and a gun. So they still win at the end of the day, probably. Yeah. But yeah, so I think that's all we wanted to go talk about. But uh yeah, there's definitely a dark side and a light side to this. It seems mostly positive to me, I think, making our computers more emotional. But it might force some cultural changes. I mean, which... Right, well, if it contributes to making, you know, a completely transparent world where everybody's intentions are almost as clear as their actions, you know, then that's going to drastically change society. Yeah. That, will, that will have... Far reaching. How how are the, those uh, muffins that I made? Oh, they're they're great. <laughs> ding ding they're, ding yeah. ding ding. Lie. <laughs> you don't have to lie to me, Carl. <laughs> I know you hate the muffins. I can see exactly how much you don't like them. Yeah, but then again, maybe the future will correct the problem of bad muffins by having it go like ding ding ding. You're screwing up the muffins earlier in the process. Right. <laughs> or, or we were talking about earlier off the air that just. I mean, so much of white lies are more about just like signaling that you're not a jerk and that you respect the person right, enough to right. not lie to them. And so they may be more like explicitly aware of your white lies, but they might still be like sort of like, yeah, the respect to lie to me. Right. Well, I think there's just a lot that goes unsaid that people know about. Uh, that's just, yeah, it's like polite to just not talk about it. And that might vastly expand in a world of increased transparency we're all politely ignoring we're the feed all... in the corner of our vision that's giving us statistical readouts of information right like john comes home and you know uh he knows that i know through my glasses that he uh, uh crashed his car into my car and right. and uh, and i i know it and he knows i know it and i know that he knows it but uh he doesn't say anything because he knows i'm upset and i uh don't say anything because I, you know, I know it's going to be taken care of by his AI bot. And so we just, uh, we don't, we don't talk about it and we both know. And maybe that's how this gets dealt with. Right. Um, but uh, on the other hand, maybe we, our culture changes some and we get less embarrassed about all these little things that now we don't like to tell each other and that it does sort of signal like a weird disrespect to mention something. Yeah, it could definitely go the other way. And I'm so sure, I don't know yeah. which way it goes. It's sort of, an, we have to see what happens, but it's an interesting... Uh, but yeah, the, the impact on culture, I think, is what's really fascinating about this. Um, so, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. I think this stuff is... This stuff is right, feels right around the corner a lot of it. I don't think this is, we're not, I mean, we've talked about some pretty far future stuff on this podcast, including last week. No, but everything we mentioned today has at least a, um, an early uh, version working that we found online. Yeah. I mean, these are not uh, far future technologies. They're things that are proven as concepts that are coming along into market soon. It's just kind of like putting all this data together and, and integrating it, right? Which that itself can take a surprisingly long time. I mean, it might take 10 years before any of this stuff is collated in some useful fashion but it will be a a big change to life when our emotions are can be quantified 
you know, yeah, as and like represented with like a little icon in the corner of our vision or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's going to engender some serious changes. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end. So uh, thanks for listening. Um, try to, you know, if you listen to the podcast and you like it, try to tell someone about it. And, uh, you know, check us out on iTunes and leave us a review there or leave us a review on Stitcher. Yeah, or uh, email us or leave us a comment. We love to hear from you guys and we'll see you uh, next week. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.